0: Hello and welcome to the Try Talking Sport podcast hosted by me, Joanne Murphy. Whether you are an athlete, adventurer, endurance enthusiast or simply have an interest in sport, you have come to the right place for inspiration, encouragement, motivation and as always a little bit of entertainment. Well, how are you this week? I'm in Lanzarote for the last week or so, embracing some winter sun and kickstarting some training after the last few weeks on the road gallivanting and announcing. I can tell you I got some shock last Tuesday when I went out on the bike and tackled Femes from the easy side. If you've ever cycled in Lanzarote before, you'll know there is no such thing as an easy side to Femmes, especially on day one of training. But it was a super spin to Playa Blanca, then back to Puerto del Carmen via Eiza. Luckily I met up with a crew from Westport Covey Wheelers who adopted me for the week. There was some crack had on and off the road with Brian, Mick, Noel, Michal and Damien. The highlight of the trip so far for me was conquering Mirador del Rio, completing a 125k spin with almost 2,000 metres of climbing with the lads on Thursday. I've been to Lanzarote so many times, but was never brave enough or fit enough to consider attempting a long cycle like that here. Never mind attempting the long slog to Mirador or the climb at the top of Tabiesco to the viewing point. But after much cajoling, convincing and encouragement by the lads and the odd bit of complaining, okay, lots of complaining from me about wanting to find the most direct flat route home, I got the job done, much to my own delight and I'm sure the lads were also very happy to be off the bike too. After much needed rest on Friday, I've been out on the bike every day with a few dips in the sea and a little bit of running done. Thanks to Peter from Bike Sensations, formerly Renner Bikes for looking after me with a great bike here. If you're traveling to Port del Carmen and looking for a bike to hire, be sure to get in touch with them. Tell them I sent you. Rumor has it, he might even venture to Ireland next year to be part of a support crew for an endurance cycling race. Hashtag watch this space. I'm looking forward to getting home this weekend and heading to Westport, hosting the Building for the Future event for Cycling Connacht on Saturday, and also MCing my first ever cyclocross race in Westport on Sunday morning. There's a stacked field of riders taking part in the cyclocross. It's going to be very exciting. I'll be glad to get a break from the bike myself for a day or two and I'm looking forward to being back on the microphone for the weekend. If you are looking for a challenge to keep you motivated this December, it's not too late to sign up to our December fitness challenge kicking off this week on December 1st and running until December 25th. Simply complete 12 hours of physical activity during the challenge period to be entered into the draw to win some super prizes from Santa's sleigh. Check out the details on the Try Talking Sport website. Why not sign up to the challenge and then when you complete it, treat yourself to some of the gifts in our stocking filler Christmas list compiled this week by Emma Porter or drop a few hints to your nearest and dearest about some gifts you'd like from the list. Check it out on www.trytalkingsport.com. Now to this week's guest. Cormac Ryan from Dublin is no stranger to cycling, having just completed a mammoth cycling adventure across Europe from Achille to Athens in 58 days covering 5,350 kilometres with 40,000 metres of climbing, all unsupported. Yes, you heard that correctly. 58 days, 5,350 kilometres and 40,000 metres of climbing. Wow. Previous to this, Cormac has cycled around Ireland and has also completed a 32-county cycling adventure as part of his Cycle for Life project. To date, he has raised over €100,000 for charity. However, cycling isn't Cormac's first love. No, as a GAA mad sports fan, it was life with a slitter and a hurley that Cormac had envisaged for himself with dreams of playing for the Dublin senior inter-county team. Whilst well on the way to achieving that goal playing on the under-18 Dublin team, life dealt him a cruel blow in the form of a heart condition that saw his GAA sporting dreams shattered at the age of 18 when he was fitted with a pacemaker. After some time he was able to return to the sport he loved and aim for inter-county hurling success once again. However, it was during this part of his sporting journey that his story takes another twist, and despite his aspirations and appetite for sport, an eating disorder that developed over the years stopped him in his tracks. Thankfully, Cormac sought help for his illness this year, and after some intensive treatment was given the go-ahead to take on his mammoth adventure from Achille to Athens with his cousin Stephen Ryan and great friend Niall O'Donnell. In this episode, we get an insight into Cormac's life in sport, his honest account of his eating disorder and how it affected him mentally, physically and emotionally in recent years. We also get a glimpse of what life was like on the road for 58 days on the bike, the highs and lows of the journey and what he is most proud of in accomplishing that epic adventure. Cormac was part of an RTE documentary two weeks ago called Unspoken where he alongside two others shared their story and battle with an eating disorder. It is well worth checking out if you can. As mentioned in the podcast, Cormac is raising funds for Bodywise, the Eating Disorder Association of Ireland, and Pieta House. You can support his fundraising on the link in the show notes for the episode on www.trytalkingsport.com. I really enjoyed chatting with Cormac and learned a lot from the episode. I hope you do too. I look forward to meeting Cormac in person at some stage and sharing the road with him on a cycling adventure in the future, although maybe not one that lasts for 58 days. Go on, grab a cuppa and enjoy the show. thank you so much for joining me on the podcast
1: thanks for having me it's good to chat to you
2: Uh, i've been stalking you on instagram for quite a while now because you are just home from athens and you completed a mammoth adventure from the west coast of ireland all the way to athens tell me a little bit about it
1: yeah i've spent the past 58 days plaguing people on instagram and on social media um yeah we cycled myself and My cousin Stephen Ryan, one of my best friends, Niall O'Donnell. We cycled five thousand three hundred and fifty k from Accol to Athens, right across Europe, in the most kind of random, bizarre route you could come up with, and taking us across thirteen countries, taking us over the Alps twice, forty thousand meters of climbing, um, and just yeah, the most amazing life experience and journey and challenge that you could possibly come up with.
2: I have to ask. How are your legs and your arse after all of that?
1: Do you know what? Actually, I'll be honest. The one thing I learned out of this is if, if you train for something properly, it's true that you can actually enjoy it. Um, and we actually trained like dogs for this. It actually meant physically we could enjoy it a bit more. It meant when you were going up 18% gradient in the Alps with fully loaded gravel bikes that we were on, you could actually enjoy the scenery rather than completely suffering. I'm not saying it was easy because it wasn't. and I'm not saying we didn't get tired because we did. But um, the legs actually held up surprisingly well. Backside wasn't too bad either. A bit of discomfort, but no major scares or issues that we ran into thankfully, because that's obviously a fear. Um, just feeling a bit depleted. Energy levels are low. I I I feel I feel like I've cycled five and a half thousand kilometers. I'm just a bit zapped energy-wise. Um, but no, the actual the legs don't feel too bad. The backside doesn't feel too bad. But I actually do have a good bit of sensation lost in my left hand. After about three, four weeks, I started getting pretty bad pins and needles when I was just on the bike, just from positioning, I'm fairly sure it's carpal tunnel. Um, and then it kind of progressed to the point where it was there all the time, even when I was kind of trying to go to sleep at night. Um, and then we got a bit of numbness and it's slowly resolving. I'm a physio, so um, I, I have an idea of what I need to be doing, but it's slowly resolving. But apart from that, I'm, I got home in one piece to my mother, so she's she's happy enough.
2: And tell me, what possessed you to go from Accel to Athens?
1: I suppose... Long story short, we were meant to go across America. I was always obsessed with San France, New York. And obviously COVID happened and we couldn't get into the US. So that had to be put on hold um, until another time, maybe. Um, But so then we said, right, we'll go across Europe. And we just didn't know what way we were going to approach Europe. Europe, there's so many options. You could go from Tallinn down to Malaga if you wanted to, um, or you could do a big loop. So we said we'd go transcontinental and we said we'd try and make it equidistant to America because that was the original idea. And then one day, my little, we were trying to brainstorm and my little brother just said, go to Athens, and um, the home of the Olympics and the home of sporting endeavour and endurance and all. He started spouting all this crap to me one day in the kitchen. So we, we just decided to go for it. And we said, right, Ackle has a good ring to it. So Ackle to Athens, that's how we came up with
2: it. So a dub going to Ackle to start a voyage and adventure that probably hasn't been done by any other Irishman ever before.
1: I actually have no idea. Now that you say it, I hadn't even thought of that. I have no idea if anyone's done that route well we might uh we we might try claim a a fastest known time of that route of that route and <laughs> um, but no i don't know if it's been done before when you're looking at america loads of people have done different routes across it but europe is kind of i don't know no one really thinks of cycling across europe so yeah we just went for it and it was just the most amazing eye-opening brilliant experience like in so many ways and um, like physically it was demanding mentally it was demanding emotionally it was demanding but then all those tough moments were interjected with just brilliant moments of meeting people and little brief moments that just, as cliche as it sounds, just restores your faith that 99.9% of the people out there are good and kind and decent and honest and actually want to help you. So it was just, yeah, it was, I won't say life-changing or anything that dramatic but definitely eye-opening and uh, kind of the experience of a lifetime it's not something you do too often.
2: And how did you navigate the logistics around it you know you're doing it in the midst of a global pandemic where borders are a little bit more tighter to get through but the logistics must have played a huge part in the success of making it from ACL to Athens.
1: Yeah, I suppose there was a couple of things that went in our favor. The hardest part of it was that we were self-supported and we were on gravel bikes. So we were on 11 kilo gravel bikes rather than a seven or eight kilo road bike. And we had about 15 kilos of gear to carry on our bikes. Everything we wanted, tents, food, water, gear, clothes, spare parts we had to bring. So that brought its own challenge. And then I suppose we were very lucky that um, Stephen's a lab technician, I'm a physio, but Niall... Niall is a primary school teacher, but he's also a bike mechanic with about ten to twelve years' experience. He did like a ten-day bike packing thing through New Zealand about two years ago, just before COVID. So Niall knows the ins and outs of bikes, and um, and he was a massive help in terms of getting our bikes set up. What bikes to pick? What tires we were going to run? What pressure we were going to run? What bike packing gear we were going to use? What spare parts we were going to bring? Like he thought of everything then in terms of europe um what countries would be the best to go through what borders are easier to go through do you try staying eu countries because it's just that bit easier with the with the digital cert i'll be honest we were very on point in terms of our route planning and in terms of our gear and in terms of our like what we were bringing what we weren't bringing and in terms of getting our setup as well and efficient as possible we weren't exactly on point when it came to borders and what exactly we needed crossing its borders. I'll be honest, and it was different for each country. Um, but having the fact that COVID was kind of had moved on a bit, and we had the digital certs, made it a lot easier in terms of logistics getting from country to country. We only had one or two, one or two dodgy moments at borders, and for the most part, they were actually grand. So. Um, yeah, no, we were we were we were lucky enough. Things things kind of ran for us. We didn't have any any disasters. But like it's like anything, if you plan plan well and prepare, um, it generally goes smoother.
2: Before we delve a bit more into the ACL to Athens adventure, I want to bring our listeners right back to the Cormac that was playing hurling for Dublin and the years that have passed since you were diagnosed with a fairly severe heart condition that required a pacemaker. So bring us right back, because it's not often you would have a Dublin hurler going off, doing a big cycle from Achille to Athens and embracing life on two wheels.
1: No, not too unusual. Although I think you've had one of my former teammates on before in the past, the man who found his way to Kona, who I once hurled with. So that's pretty impressive. I'm not not like that now. I'm not at that level. Is Um, that Killian
2: you're talking about?
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. I played with Killian when we were 18. Um, So we've both taken quite different paths for GA players um probably slightly more unusual paths to two wheels um yeah i was hurling with dublin i was minor with dublin in 2010 and 2011 and like for context i grew up in a ga mad household like ga obsessed there was bikes weren't even on the radar and and i suppose growing up all i wanted to do was play with dublin that's kind of the ambition and i was pretty dedicated to it i was pretty average but i was pretty dedicated to it so I, i I was playing with Dublin and we got through an all-Ireland final in 2011 and we got there. And then about six months later, I kept having these episodes of like dizzy spells and chest pain when I was exercising. And we didn't really know what was wrong. I'm we a pretty bad at asthmatic, so we thought it might be something to do with that. Didn't fix the problem. It kept happening, kept fainting on the pitch. And basically, I'd been in and out of hospital two or three times. They couldn't figure out what was wrong. Mom and dad weren't happy with the answers that they were getting. They sensed that there was something more at play they were right and so uh, they got me a review with a with a with a cardiologist and they put a halter monitor on me for 24 hours in February 2012 and I was in town one afternoon and I got a phone call saying we've found something wrong with your heart will you come up to Bowman Hospital as soon as you can and took my time going up didn't register with me whatsoever I actually went home and had a bit of food and they rang me again they were like where are you walked in, a gave my name and they put me straight in a wheelchair wouldn't let me walk up uh, and brought me up to coronary care and I ended up being there for about two weeks um, and yeah long story short I was diagnosed with a condition called atrioventricular block so structurally my heart is pretty sound but the electricals are a bit not quite doing what they should do so um, basically my heart was stopping for about five seconds at a time intermittently it would skip beats at night like I was relatively fit but my heart so my but like my heart rate at night was dropping down to around mid-20s I wasn't even close to that fit like not even close like so my heart rate was slowing way down so ended up uh, leaving hospital later with a pacemaker two weeks later and um, which was a massive shock to the system for an 18-year-old and given the advice to give up playing and football, which thankfully we found a way around because contact sports and pacemakers generally don't work together. It's generally too dangerous, but we managed to figure out a way around that. But I was devastated. Like 18 years old, they're telling you to give up GA and they're telling you you have this serious enough heart condition that may or may not have killed you if it had went undetected. So yeah, it was a bit of a rock to the system.
2: And how do you go from... Being the lively 18 year old about the town, going home for the dinner, getting into Beaumont, into the wheelchair. It's like suddenly, holy shit, I'm leaving this place with a piece of equipment that's saving my life. How do you how do you deal with that? Um,
1: To be honest, I didn't. Um, I I don't think I really did deal with it. I definitely didn't process it. I turned down a lot of psychological help and support because I was just kind of in denial. I slipped pretty bad into a bout of depression afterwards, which I think in hindsight was quite understandable. And I suppose actually, yeah, I and I just went to a dark place. I, I didn't know how to process it. I didn't know how to deal with it. And as much as parents and family tried to reach out and give me a, a helping hand and, and push me in the right direction, I wasn't ready to go there. Um, I suppose the one, you'll probably come on to it, but the one way I did deal with it was I, I tried to make myself feel better. Um by I kind of said I need to make something positive out of this I need to do something to to help to help me feel better about myself and um, so about a year after I got to pacemaker and we we tried to raise a bit of money for cardiac charities and I, to be honest I did it for quite selfish reasons like i I did it so I could help my, make myself feel better about how I was rather than necessarily than being really uh really trying to give something back I suppose I was really doing it for selfish reasons so um, Yeah, a year later we cycled, we set up a charity cycle event and we cycled 1,200 kilometers around the coastline of Ireland, just trying to raise a bit of money for cardiac charities. Um, And I suppose I probably immersed myself in that in 2013. Um, And it was just, it was a distraction, I suppose. It served a purpose Um, and it probably helped with a bit of the healing and helped get my head around it a bit. Um, And that's kind of how I accidentally fell into cycling. Uh, through that charity cycle event that we set up we raised about 35 grand for charity and we got overwhelming support and yeah probably kind of hooked me a bit i suppose
2: you mentioned um sense of purpose there but the one thing i want to come back to is um the sense of purpose and the sense of identity. You mentioned growing up in a GA-mad household. I'm sure you were rarely found without a football or a, a hurley and a slitter in your hand. I'm sure there were days where you were probably in school, but you were probably playing more uh, hurling and football than, than studying. So to go from being, you know, totally immersed in not only your club scene, but the county scene, and to then have all that taken away from you, it must have... It must have been a big blow aside from the pacemaker piece and your health side. But losing that, what I imagine is a sense of identity that, hey, I'm a GA player and I'm playing on the, the Dublin intercounty team. That must have been massive.
1: Yeah, it was huge. Like after I got the diagnosis and after the pacemaker went in, I was more upset about not being allowed to hurl again than I was about the fact that I had a pacemaker. Like my only concern was hurling when I got the diagnosis. So first thing I asked cardiologists was like, Can I still play? So like that was a monumental blow. Like you lose you lose a sense of who you are and what you are and what you're doing and what your life is meant to be. Like because at 18, all I wanted was hurling. All I wanted to do was play, play for the dozen senior hurlers. And it was a monumental blow. And I suppose it, it's probably taught dash along with a lot of other stuff over the last 10 years. It's been a bit of a journey. But it's something I've probably only really learned and accepted in the past six months is that like you can't, no matter how good you are at something, you can't pin your identity on it. Because if you do, because it can all be taken away in an instant, and then you become a very lost soul. Like I was at 18, I was completely lost. I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know what I was on this planet for. Um, and it's very hard when you're in that position to at 18 to kind of have the wherewithal and the, the life experience to know that you need to be more than just a hurler and to put more value on yourself than just what you're capable of doing on a pitch. But it's a it's a lesson I've I've slowly learned over the years. But yeah, at the time it was it was devastating. It was like it was like a debt,
2: you know. The cycling started a year after the pacemaker was put in so from a health perspective say physical health as opposed to mental health were you on the right track with with getting back to a level of fitness again or um was the mental aspect of it overshadowing your ability to physically build yourself back up again to become an athlete in
1: 2013 it was i, I still wasn't mentally in a good place and actually when we did disciple in 20 in 2013 i wasn't in amazing physical shape uh, by any means to be honest um, we had a m- massive support crew and there was a group of us and I got through the cycle but I wasn't in great physical condition in 2015 then we did another charity cycle whereby we cycled through all 32 counties in Ireland in 10 days and it was about another 1200 k. by that stage I was in a much better place mentally and, and by far better place physically and it was as if, it was as if over time the physical condition just followed the mental condition if you know what I mean and I think a lot of people can probably resonate with that. Like it, it, it's very true. Like if you're in a good place mentally, chances are you'll be in a decent place physically. Um, obviously, like you get injuries and stuff like that. But in a general sense, um, when I was in a better place mentally, the body just seemed to follow. Um, I just think in terms of quality to work, you can do awareness of what you're fueling yourself with, and awareness of how your trainings going, and recovery, and rest, and gym work, and all these different components. Um yeah i definitely found that like without a doubt the, the better condition i was in mentally the better i was able to perform the better athlete i was i got back playing with the double under 21 hurlers in 20 in 2014 um, which is what my big ambition was i didn't want the pacemaker to define me i wanted to say look it's not ideal what happened but i still got back playing at a high level um and it was very much the, the, that the mind did the work and the body just followed because you can't if we all know that if you're You're not feeling well mentally and the mind isn't in a good place. It's very hard to get yourself prepped right for any event, whether it's GA, whether it's running, whether it's try, whatever it is.
2: And how did you manage to then get yourself back to the fitness level required to play uh, inter-county? Because I imagine there's probably some restrictions on the pacemaker that you probably can't go over a certain heartbeat or something like that. So how do you manage the training or did you manage the training to get yourself to the point where you would make the team once again?
1: Do you know what? I'm actually very lucky in the nature of the heart condition I have. So in this sense, I'm lucky because my heart, when it wants to do its own thing, just wants to go slow, right? That's all it wants to do. It just wants to slow down and slow down, and slow down. So in terms of exercising, I'm actually relatively safe because there's no real, I'm under no restrictions in terms of getting my heart rate up because they've every year I do do a stress test. They strap me up to the, the heart monitors and they run me till I drop on that treadmill and they're looking at what my heart does and it's always fine. My issue comes at night or when I'm at rest or when I'm asleep. That's when my issue comes. So I was very lucky. That was one massive advantage I have in terms of being able to get back playing at a high level and being able to get back fit was that I was under no restrictions. And ironically, I actually felt a million times better because when I was 18 and I was playing with Dublin before I got the pacemaker, I used to be so tired and so lethargic and I could never figure out why. And um, it wasn't it wasn't the lack of fuel it wasn't the lack of sleep I just because I was sleeping like 10 hours and I'd still be exhausted so it actually it was like a new lease of life in a way I felt so much better after I got over the initial bump and energy levels felt better and I I found I was actually capable of doing a lot more and um, so I was lucky in that regard Um, and I worked hard to get back fit I probably it was probably that was probably um the top when I was trying to get back with Dublin and I was probably aware that to be at that peak condition to play county level hurling I probably was carrying a little bit much too weight or what I perceived to be so I probably tried to drop weight and do do more work in the gym and do more running and and that's probably ironically where the very core of my issues around food and six seven years later came to pass I probably didn't do it in the most healthy manner and it was definitely another lesson I learned in terms of in terms of how to get your back and get yourself back in proper physical condition because I hold my hands up and say, I probably didn't do it in the healthiest way. But at that stage, I was surrounded in a dressing room by 30 other intercounty county And I was just thinking, I need to get in better physical condition. I need to get in better physical condition. So I did all the things you shouldn't do. I cut out carbohydrates. I wouldn't take rice after training. I wouldn't take pasta. I wouldn't take bread. I did extra cardio session. Like I did all the things you shouldn't do. Uh, but I was 21, a naive 21 year old. And all I wanted to do was get back on that pitch in a blue jersey. And um, I just it didn't do it in a very healthy manner. But again, another another lesson learned
2: if it's okay with you i want to talk a little bit about the eating disorder that yeah, you course. just briefly touched on there um so tell me a little bit more about it like i i don't really understand the whole background of having an eating disorder yeah. so for our listeners tell me a little bit about how it spiraled out of control and what you did to get better which ultimately led to you being able to ride from Accle to athens
1: yeah it's 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 been a long long journey so i suppose eating disorders are something that are is ver, are very hard to understand if you've never experienced one or if you've never seen one close up and i suppose there's an off. i suppose first off there's an awful lot of misconceptions out there so i don't know the exact percentage but it's well over three quarters of people who have eating disorders are actually considered within a normal body weight range so that's a massive misconception that's out there that you have to be completely emaciated to have an eating disorder Having an eating disorder doesn't necessarily mean that you're starving yourself 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can be extremely restrictive, but still eat certain things or certain food types or eat smaller amounts and still have quite a severe eating disorder. And then I suppose the other thing, I suppose, is men get eating disorders too. And that's one reason why I didn't seek help for so long. So that I was convinced um, you couldn't. Um, And I suppose it it started when I was trying to get back playing with Dublin. I I just I, I fell into those unhealthy behaviors that we often so often hear. Uh, spouted about the place like low carb days and cutting out food types I, I fell into them and while they were individually not too harmful individually at the time you let that progress over a period of six seven years like I did and it becomes worse and worse and worse and it was all very gradual with me it wasn't like one day I woke up and I just stopped eating like when I was back playing with Dublin in 2014 it was just low carb more, more cardio. And then I kind of got into what they call an orthorexia phase, kind of in 2016, 2017, 2018, whereby you're just obsessed with healthy food. Like I was completely obsessed with healthy food. I would not fuel my body with anything I thought was detrimental, sugar, wrong carbohydrates, um, fizzy drinks, anything. I would not put that. I was like so clean. It wasn't even funny. And again, quite harmful in a way, again, seemingly you can hide under that blanket as an athlete for a while, but then, then you start, someone offers you a slice of cake when you go into their house or someone says, do you want a bit of chocolate? And you're, you're starting to think in your head, oh no, I can't. And you nearly get a bit panicked about having it. Or if you do have it, you start overthinking it. That's where you start getting into this problematic range. And that's what happened to me around 2016, 2017, 2018. I was, I was becoming afraid of foods. I wouldn't eat a pizza. I wouldn't get a takeaway with the lads, even if it was only once a week. I wouldn't go into someone's house and have a biscuit. I'd break, I'd I'd have a cup of tea and I'd want something sweet. So I'd get a protein bar and cut it in half. That's where, and then it spiraled again. So I was in that phase. And then by the time 2019, 2020, and this year came along, I had really started to spiral. Um, I started off, I wasn't eating breakfast, but I'd have lunch and dinner. Then it was, I wouldn't eat breakfast, but I'd have an apple and a packet of popcorn for lunch. And I'd eat dinner. Then it was, I'm not eating breakfast. I'm not eating lunch. I'll just have my dinner all the while being highly active. Then it got to the stage where dinner was the same meal over and over again. I would have turkey burgers and broccoli and a few baby potatoes. And that was it. You offered me any other food and I would panic. And at this stage, I was still in complete denial, complete denial. Um, And then it got to the stage where if I ate anything different for dinner, I wouldn't eat the next day. Um, or if I was going out for dinner I wouldn't eat that day I'd go out for dinner and then I wouldn't eat the following day I was extremely fearful of certain food types then what started happening was I started having panic attacks then I'd wake up in the morning and my first thought would be I can't eat today I can't eat today and I'd try to go as long as I possibly could without eating I would and I'd be starving and I'd keep going and going and going as long as I could to not eat and um, and once the panic attack started and I wasn't able to go into work and that was kind of at the start of this year where things started spiraling, I knew I knew it was bad. And then what really scared me was I started, um, there were certain days where if I had eaten something, I started going into the bathroom, kind of contemplating, trying to make myself get sick. And I started looking up different ways that I could potentially make myself get sick if I needed to. And that's what really scared me. And that's when I knew when I'd spent long, extended periods of time not eating, having panic attacks, thinking about going into the bathroom and doing certain things um, and just being completely terrified and of food. And then the worst part, just consumed by it. My mind was completely consumed by it where I could not concentrate on anything else other than not eating. Or if I did eat, all I could think about was why I just ate and I would convince myself that I put on weight. I'd spend hours staring in the mirror every day picking at myself when there was nothing to pick at just examining every little area of my body and it was at that point where my quality of life my minute-to-minute quality of life was just gone that's where I was I kind of realized I wasn't functioning anymore and I was avoiding social situations and I didn't want to see people and I was like right I I, I stopped functioning to the point where I couldn't go to work anymore and I had no choice but to ask for help it wasn't as if I extended I, I held my hand out early and was like lads there's something wrong here I'm taking a brave step I wasn't functioning anymore. I fell over and I had no choice.
2: And did anybody try to stage an intervention with you or did people recognise that this was happening or were you covering it up? Were you able to cover it up?
1: No, I suppose the sad thing, John, about eating disorders is they're extremely secretive illnesses. And the one thing they teach you to be able to be is an extremely good liar and extremely sly um, and cunning. So no, my friends and families and everyone and everyone close to me didn't know and I suppose the the way I was able to hide it so well everyone on the outside how would they not know how would they not know you're eating but I suppose it goes back to the fact that so many the vast majority of people with eating disorders are of a healthy weight so my weight never went too drastic either way over the years like I generally hovered within a six seven probably a six seven kilo range over the years from 2014 to 2020 so it never went too crazy either way so I always appeared outwardly Fine. Um, I work full time as a physio, so yeah. Oh, I had breakfast. I, I always have breakfast in, in work, which a lot of healthcare workers do because we start early. And oh yeah, I had lunch in work, and then you'd get home, and it could be oh yeah, uh, there was pizza dropped into work. There we had a few extra slices before we left. Or I'm going out now and meeting lads. I'll grab something with them. Or all you'd have to do to get everyone off the scent was just make sure they saw you eating something. And I'd always make sure they saw me eating something in the evening. So even if it was just an apple and a yogurt or a protein bar with a cup of tea, in and this is a terrible thing to say, but in in a loved one's head, they're not looking out for the fact that you might be like, it would never cross their mind. So as long as they see you eating something, they were like, oh yeah, he must've eaten at some stage or that's normal. He's eating. And it's it's very easy in that way to pull the wool over someone's eyes. And the other thing I'd say, and it's why, i'm a firm I, I genuinely believe the rates are way higher in athletes than we realize is that it's so easy to hide under the blanket of i'm an athlete i'm looking after myself like i might have i could have gone two days without eating and then i might get a chopped salad and like completely unsustainable what i was doing but i would need way more fuel than that but again you can if you're eating a salad as an athlete you're like oh i'm just looking after myself I'm not training today low carb day carb cycling, blah blah blah. Like it's all waffle, but it's it's so easy to do it. It's such a good, it's such a good closet to hide
2: in. Surely your performance suffered. Your your physical training and performance suffered because you weren't fueling your body
1: massively. Like I, that's mad what I did. Like I was playing, still playing senior hurling with the club at the time. I used to, I used to wonder why I'd have no energy on the pitch. We go up training or we play a match, and I wonder why I'd feel faint. I couldn't figure it out because. Your, your brain is so starved of nutrition that your, your thought process is completely warped, like completely warped. So my performance on the pitch definitely declined. And then in, in terms of training and cycling um, for the big endurance event across Europe, like it was madness what I was doing this time last year. Like I'd go out and do a 100K spin in the morning without having breakfast and I wouldn't bring any food with me. And I'd get to 90K and I'd start to get tired and weak on the bike. And I'd genuinely be wondering why. And I couldn't figure out why. for sure I hadn't eaten anything. My first marathon that I did, I did fasted and without any fuel, food or water to drink along the way because I did it on my own one day at the start of lockdown and I couldn't figure out why at 36, 37 K I was hitting this wall and it was baffling me. Like my mind was completely warped and I was just flogging a dead horse completely. And my performance drastically disimproved for a long, long time.
2: You went out and ran a marathon fasted and had no fuel on the marathon.
1: No, that's where I was at. Um, It was probably October, November last year. um, And I had been doing a bit of, I was mixing up, I was training for cycling across Europe and I was just thinking, my training was, I was just thinking long and slow, long and slow. So I built up the run into about 30k, and I went out one morning and I would no, I, I just said, I'll go for a try. I had no intention of running the marathon. It was early in October, November. It was a Saturday or Sunday morning. It was torrential rain. And I mean torrential rain. Um, And I was on my own and I got to about a half marathon and I felt okay. I said, ah, sure, we will have a crack at this. hadn't eaten anything. And then I got to 30K and 32K and I was in the Phoenix Park and I was still so far from home. I was like, oh, this won't be far off marathon. So I just said, right, we'll try to do this. And I had no food, no nothing with me. It was torrential rain. I was on my own completely fasted nothing to eat nothing to drink it was madness absolute madness what I did
2: in my head the word discipline keeps coming back um, when I'm listening to what you're saying it's like as if you were way too disciplined uh, in terms of what you could eat like in certain respects I'd love to have the discipline where I could say no to all the sweet stuff but it's discipline on the wrong side Am I on the right track in saying that on, without, without being disrespectful, I guess?
1: No, no, you're on the right track. It, it, there's definitely a link there from discipline. And what the word I'd use is perfection. and mm. um, Because there's no coincidence that all the people and great friends now that I have that I was in treatment with, we all share extremely similar personality types. And the personality type generally with eating disorders is that type a high achiever perfectionist personality that's the generic eating disorder personality type so discipline or perfectionism i'm not sure. quite sure are they two strands of the same personality type maybe but we generally take it too far and that's that's what happened we took it too far now i won't be disciplined i would have even when before the eating disorder came along i would have been an extremely disciplined individual but it probably stems more from perfectionism um, it's, it's
2: like the dark side of discipline. So you think about what you said at the start, mm-hmm. where all you wanted to do was to play hurling for your county. That was mm-hmm. it, growing up in a mad GA house, and that's all you wanted. And even when you got through the health piece with the heart, all you wanted at 24 years of age was to get the, the jersey back on you and the discipline required to get there. Yes, lots of athletes have an incredible amount of discipline, but it's it's like the dark side of discipline. Or the imperfect imperfect side of
1: perfectionism. Yeah. It's no, you're you're 100% right. It's 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 not having the ability to realize that sometimes good enough is good enough. And that's where a lot of that's that's the fine line with a lot of athletes whereby their their sport maybe might or might not take over their life or might they may or may not burn themselves out so much they get injured it's sometimes good enough is good enough and I think it applies to a lot of aspects of life but particularly being an athlete and if you want to be performing at a high level and if you want to stay injury free sometimes it doesn't have to be perfect sometimes good enough is good enough and I fell into that trap of perfectionism when it came to my body shape when it came to my performance when it came to what I perceived to be the perfect way to approach things. And, and it, it led me down a, a very dangerous path, to be honest.
2: But thankfully that uh, path had a Y in the road and you took the left instead of the right.
1: Yeah. So I obviously I wasn't functioning. And at this stage, I this stage I'd never seen it, I, I didn't, hadn't seen a consultant, but I knew something was seriously wrong. I was like, maybe I have an eating disorder. Maybe I don't. I was still kind of in denial. So luckily, I I got an assessment in a place called Lois Bridges, an eating disorder treatment center in Sutton in Dublin. I did the assessment with consultants and she was nearly laughing at me like because I was so I was so in denial. This was in May 2021. So just gone. And she was like, You have a full-blown eating disorder. And I was like, Really? Do I? I was like, I don't need like, I was like, can I not just do like one outpatient therapy session a week? And she was like, Absolutely not. Like she's like, You're not well. Like you're about to she's like, you're about to completely spiral out of control here. Like it's laughable now, like, but my mind was so warped. Um, and it actually took her two assessments to she did an assessment on a Thursday, and I was like, They they wanted me to start the program, which would involve me going in at eight o'clock in the morning, staying there till eight o'clock at night. doing that every day for at least six weeks it turned out to be eight weeks but then she she had to bring me back the following Thursday again to convince me like because I still wasn't grasping that I wasn't well like I thought I was fine but I I was so unwell at the time and I was so deeply unhappy and my mind was so consumed by like I couldn't concentrate on anything my mind was so consumed by food and what I looked like and fear of putting on weight and so she brought me back again and again still looked me in the eye she was like listen bud you need to come in you're not well you have an eating disorder so it eventually started to sink in, and then the following Monday, it was the twenty eighth of June. I eventually started in Lowest bridges and I was there for eight weeks. Yeah, and, and
2: did, were you a resident in there, or was it like a d- in and out for the day? Or so,
1: so they actually wanted me to go in as a resident, like be in there twenty four seven, and I just full on point blank refused. Like at like at this stage in my head, that the cycle from Ackle was still going ahead, even though at that stage, it was clearly, very clearly up in the air. Um, and the consultant was like, absolutely not, this isn't happening. So I was like, I need to be out. I need to still be able to get on my bike. And They were like, listen, bud, you're not cycling for a while. But, so anyway, they met me halfway and I went in as what they call the day program. So I may as well have, have been in as a resident because I'd leave my house in Santry here, about 15 minutes away. Um, at eight in the morning, I would go out there the other guys would have just come downstairs and I'd stay there till later nine in the evening I was there all day I'd come home go to bed and go back in the next day like I was literally sleeping at home I wasn't doing anything else so I may as well have went in but I suppose I was so fearful of going in and I probably had this wrong prejudice of what life would be like in there which was completely false but then yeah I was I did that for eight weeks and uh, I don't know how and I don't know how I did such a 180 um but like when I say they've given me my life back, it's it's incredible what they did because I was at the stage where I was willing to try and get better, but I didn't see how I could get better. And I remember saying that to the consultant. I was like, I'll try, but I can't see how you're going to fix this. And if that had continued, I'm quite open about the fact that I don't know how long it would have taken, but if, if, if my life had continued the way it was going, I would have gotten sicker and sicker. And if that mental turmoil had continued... At, one, at some point, whether it was two years or 10 years down the line, at some point, I would have snapped. I wouldn't have been able to deal with it any longer because that's how all consuming it was. So they put me in there for eight weeks and then, um, yeah, just taught me how to trust food again and made me realize that it was never actually about the food. And it was about my perception of myself and how I viewed myself and my body image and how I really felt about myself deep down um, and an amount of therapy with all sorts of different therapists that you could imagine, and. Yeah. Eight weeks later, I walked out the door and the consultant gave me a blessing that I could go cycle across Europe as bizarre and as unusual a thing as it would be to do leaving an eating disorder treatment center because of the relationship between exercise and eating disorders. As bizarre as that sounds, they gave me their blessing and they were confident that I could do it. And I, um, yeah, I, I did what I needed to do. I ate all the calories I needed to eat and I was I, they weighed me before I left and I had a review with the dietitian last week. She weighed me again and I was within 0.1 of a kilo of my weight when I left after cycling across the continent. So I, I actually, in, in a mad sort of bizarre way, I'm nearly more proud of that than anything else to do with the cycle and um, because it was proof that I fueled myself properly and it was proof that I overcame what was my biggest fear, which wasn't the Alps and wasn't the 40,000 meters of climbing and it wasn't the loaded gravel bike, but it was fueling myself properly and eating the amount of food that once would have sent me into a absolute huge panic attack and this Um, might
2: sound like a real stupid question now but can you enjoy food now do you enjoy different types of food or are you sticking to I suppose a particular type of diet
1: can I enjoy food I'm not going to lie and say that I walked out of there eight weeks later after suffering with something for eight years and I was fully just miraculously healed um I think this is something that will probably always be a bit of a part of me. And I think that's okay to say, I'm not naive enough to think that there'll be a day in the future where I don't overthink food a little bit, or I don't over-examine what I look like. But I'm at the stage now where I, I still get thoughts and I still get slightly the, the, the eating disorder voice in my head, as we call it, is still there. And it's still, I woke up this morning and there was still a little voice in my head saying, you probably shouldn't eat breakfast this morning, mate. But what you do is you learn how to ignore it. You learn how to deal with it. You learn how to not let it dictate your life. And you learn how to not let it consume your mind 24-7. Like before I went into treatment, I was consumed 24-7 by thoughts. The only time a thought might come into my head now is maybe before I eat or just after I eat. And I know how to deal with that. And I know it's not real. And I know it's coming from somewhere completely different, that's an insecurity somewhere and it's very simple i just have a very i I have two or three very simple things i do if i get exceptionally anxious about something or or if i get concerned about food i whatever the voice in my head is telling it to do i just do the opposite so it's called opposite action whatever that voice that eating disorder voice tells me to do i just do the opposite of it and and i usually just verbalize it i might just say to mom i am like oh just feeling a bit anxious this is a tricky meal um And then I just usually write it down and it's all fine and it all goes away pretty quickly. Like I I am enjoying food again and I'm not nearly as afraid of food or worried about food as I was. And I can't quite believe that it's gotten to that way, but I'm not going to sit here and lie and say it's perfect because it's still a bit of a journey to go on. And they say recovery can take years and I'm only out of the place two, three months. But ironically enough, even though cycling across a continent was probably the complete opposite of what most people do when they leave an eating disorder treatment center. Although that's the case, having to eat five or 6,000 calories every day, full of the foods that I hated eating, bread, pasta, cheese, hummus, rice, like I was terrified of them, like to the point where they give me panic attacks, having to eat them constantly every day and having to eat breakfast on sitting on the floor of a little car park in the middle of Hungary you know what being at home is the easiest thing in the world food is so much easier now because if i can get through that and eat that many calories and that much food and that much of what i would have considered scary foods while i was away from home with no structure any meals at home since i've been back are they're grand so i'm doing i'm doing all right
2: and how was it with the two lads Stephen and Niall that were on the the adventure with you in terms of looking out for each other I suppose they they probably looked out for you a bit more than they looked out for themselves
1: yeah so like we had a very open and frank conversation for an hour a couple of days before we left and I kind of said look if I get like this if you think I'm not eating call me out on it don't tiptoe and if you really think and if I go into denial mode really go at me and call me out on it if you need to thankfully that never happened and I did what I needed to do there, there, and there was two days where I, where I found particularly and I said lads I'm really struggling here today just I said it to them in the morning I was like just keep an eye on me and that's all they did um, and it was fine but we, we made it very simple we just made a rule at the start that and I took it out of my hands a little bit but for the first couple of weeks but ultimately it was the right thing to do and um, we just made a rule at the start that whatever they were eating I had to eat and whenever they were eating I had to eat and that took the pressure off me for the first couple of weeks. And then by about halfway through, we all clearly saw that it was working pretty well and I could deviate a little bit if I needed to or whatever. But it, it um, yeah, no, they were great. They were monumental support. Um, and trying to keep up with the amount that that pair eat was tough, go. <laughs> um, but they, they were such a good support. And they'd check in on me and be like, are you all right? It's today a tough day. Are you okay? Yeah, no, having the two lads was just, was a game changer. Made it a hell of a lot easier.
2: Do you think was the mental aspect or the physical aspect of the challenge coupled with the um, eating disorder more difficult? So was the mental side of it tougher or the physical side of it tougher?
1: Oh, mental by a mile. And like, do you know what? Eat disorder aside, if we take the eating disorder out of it, the mental side of it was tougher. And I'll I'll tell you why. It's all well and good doing these things with a support crew who... You get off your bike and they're like, Oh, you're staying here, you're having dinner here. Here's your food, here's fresh clothes, here's water. Like the most exhausting thing we had to do, toughest part of the whole journey was that we were self supported So we'd get up in the morning, we'd spend 45 minutes packing up all our gear into our bike packing bags. We'd have had our breakfast, we'd get on the bike, we'd cycle whatever 70, 80k, find somewhere for lunch. Sometimes the shops would be shut. You'd be like, Oh, we should go another 10k and I'd find a shop, cycle another 70 or 80k land in somewhere tired then you're like right where are we sleeping is there a campsite here is there a hostel here is there a shop here is there any restaurants around lads? and you'd have to do all this stuff when you're tired and fed up and sweaty or cold or wet even even when you're wet it was worse you'd have to set up your, ca- your tent set up your sleeping bag all that takes time then you're finally going right we'll get food and then you spend dinner you don't even spend dinner catching up with people or chatting to each other you spend dinner on commute trying to figure out what route you're going tomorrow trying to figure out what towns you can stop in trying to figure out is there somewhere where you can do a wash because your clothes are stinking is there a bike shop in that town because we need new brake pads we've ran out of chamois cream that's where can we get chamois cream like that whole aspect i would i would really say it to someone don't underestimate how much more difficult the self-supported aspect is it is a complete Game changer. It gives you freedom, yes, to a degree. But me and the lads used to laugh and joke. And it's not to diminish what anyone has ever done as an achievement. But me and the lads used to laugh and joke like we'd be like, Jesus, lads, imagine how handy it is if we had a support crew and we all we have to do was get off the bike and go to bed. Like it was that was the toughest part. When you're tired and you're cranky and you're hungry and you land into the middle of Hungary in this small village in the middle of nowhere, and no one's speaking speaking English, and you have to find a place to get food and a place where you can set up your tent. And somewhere to buy breakfast for the next morning and you have to find Wi-Fi, like it's exhausting. It's absolutely exhausting mentally by a mile. It doesn't even come close.
2: You probably didn't have time to think about food with all the other stuff that was going on. So it was probably a godsend in a way that you were (laughs) (laughs) self-supported that you couldn't be thinking about the calories or the food or whatever, what you were eating because you were probably mindlessly even though you probably weren't mindlessly eating but do you know what I mean that like your focus wasn't on everything that you were putting into your mouth because it was like okay where are we getting to what are we doing where are we sleeping you know so probably was a bit of um a bit of a distraction you mentioned your mum there that you would say to her that you'd be a little bit anxious has your relationship changed with your parents over the years because of everything that's happened
1: um ah yeah no it is like um I suppose they both got a massive scare at 18 and um, when I was 18, they both got a monumental scare. The last thing they expected to have was a son up in coronary care with this serious cardiac condition and consultants telling them, look, we're lucky we caught this because it could have went a different way. Probably um, mom and dad were by no means exceptionally hard on us growing up whatsoever. They definitely didn't fall into the uh, pushy parents category, but they definitely softened up even more. Um, um, we're always probably just a bit worried, like just that bit worried about us, I suppose, and probably made made them a little bit more concerned over the years. I I, I have a very good relationship with mom and dad, and they're brilliant. Like I, I I probably to a degree feel a bit guilty about the amount of crap I've put them through. <laughs> um, they've had to deal with a lot of a lot of ups and downs with me, and a lot of kind of random crusades. Like again, like you don't expect your eighteen year old son to turn around and tell you he's cycling around Ireland, then you don't expect your Twenty-eight-year-old son to tell you he's quitting his job to go cycle across the continent. Like they've had to put up with a lot of mad crusades, but no, um, not have been eternally supportive. And um, if if anything, it brings you closer to them, I suppose, and makes you, um, yeah, it just makes you appreciate how lucky I am to have them. Like because I've I've met people on this journey, particularly with eating disorder, who who probably aren't so lucky to have such supportive and such supportive a network, and that's heartbreaking. So. No, if anything, it just makes you appreciate them even more, to be honest.
2: And I'm sure your mum was delighted to hear that you were home safe and sound after how many days, 58 days of cycling.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I I I don't know what's gonna happen now if if I if I decide to go for this America thing at some point and I have to break that news to her. I, I I'm not quite sure how that will be how that will go down. I might get booted out of the house now at this stage.
2: You better just behave yourself for the next few weeks to see if you can get the free pass to go away. Um, I want to ask you a little bit more about the uh, the Acre to Athens. So what was the, I suppose, the highlight of the trip really? You have mentioned the amount of people, fabulous people that you've met. But was there one particular highlight, one particular country or a route that you did that absolutely blew your mind?
1: There's, there's a mountain pass called the Lagora Pass in Albania. Um, And I suppose when people think Europe and mountains, they think the Alps. But what people don't realize, that whole coastline, Croatia, Bosnia, Montenegro, Albania, Greece, that whole Adriatic coastline is exceptionally mountainy, like exceptionally mountainy. So when we got over the Alps for the second time and we naively thought that was the climbing done, it wasn't. Like that whole coastline, it's rigorous climbing. And there's this mountain pass called the Ligora Pass in Albania. And I have never seen... Switchbacks like it. I have never seen hairpins like it. I've never seen such a monumental road built on the side of this mountainous cliff. Like it was absolutely incredible. It was it was stunning and um, the scenery and just the roads were beautiful and there was no cars on it. And you you have this 10 12 kilometer descent on these monumentally huge switchbacks where you we descend like descended fifteen hundred meters and oh just stunning the lagora pass horrific climbing but my god the reward you get when you get to the top to come back down it's cool because everyone talks about like von or all these places and but like no one no one even in cycling knows the lagora like no one in this part of the world knows the lagora pass and we've been up it so it's very cool like that that day when we were descending the lagora pass was just incredible there was another day that was horrifically painful we were in slovenia and we'd just come out of the alps for the second time we crossed the french alps and then we crossed the austrian alps but um we're in this area of slovenia and we were probably caught a bit off guard with just how hilly and mountainous it is um and we go up this pass and i think we climbed something like i think we climbed something like 1300 meters in in 14k or something stupid like it was horrific like we were climbing for crawling up this with nasty gradients but like on the burn I'll never forget the look of the tree of us at the top but the scenery was just stunning like um Slovenia is a beautiful country um, and then apart from that as cliche as it sounds to people we didn't have 58 days on the road and we did not have one negative experience with people not one and we had a lot of different interactions you know so um Yeah, people are exceptionally kind and generous.
2: Did you ever get to the point at any stage where you thought you couldn't finish it?
1: Um, Yeah, day 38.
2: That was a very quick answer. I was waiting for you to go, no.
1: Day 38. Day 38 was, there was two moments. Day 38 was the first one. Um, uh, It's ingrained in my mind and I learned a very valuable life lesson out of it. We were in Plifika National Park in Croatia. And again, Croatia, deceptively mountainous. Like we don't have hills and mountains over here. That's what I've learned um day 38 there was a red weather warning so we had this we couldn't cycle in it that day on day 37 we couldn't cycle because there was a red weather warning and then it was meant to pass and it didn't pass and we woke up on day 38 and it was about five degrees and i mean torrential rain and we had to go up this mountain pass in the national park and i had had a particularly tough week with food mentally i wasn't sleeping well I was having a really bad body image day I really struggled to eat my breakfast and I actually just broke down in the bathroom before we left I was just like I don't know if I can do this lads we had another 20 20 days to do and another probably 2000 kilometers I was like I don't know if I can keep doing this I was just worn out the physical toll of cycling the mental toll of having to eat so much and the emotional toll that goes with that and I looked outside and it was torrential rain and the worst part was we have we we were in a red weather warning and we had to do double the distance so we ended up having to do, we were meant to have two short days of like 80 and 80, but because we didn't cycle the first day, we ended up having to double up. So we had to do 168K in a red weather warning with torrential rain going up a mountain pass in five degree weather. And I was mentally already fractured before we even left. And we got through it and I was broken. And, but for a long period of it, I didn't think I we'd get through it. We got to a town called Gracac, about, and we had 89k done and we stopped for lunch and me and stephen and Niall sat shivering and i mean shivering on the ground outside wet and miserable and so stephen had to take off my helmet because my hands were gone so numb he had to take unzip my jacket for me but we actually eventually got over the mountain pass and all of a sudden we got up to the top and we could see over the other side of the mountain and it was just you could see the, the brightness in the distance and you could see the clouds clearing And it was just the nicest feeling. And we still had another 70 or 80K to go, but we got through it. And even though the the last 70 or 80K was still pretty tough, but it taught me a very valuable lesson in terms of just always give yourself a chance. Like I woke up that morning and I wasn't going to give myself a chance. And if it wasn't for Stephen and Niall, they dragged me out the door. They were like, you have to do this. They were like, you have to get out here on that bike this morning. And I was I was so broken. And by the end of the day, after we the 168, whatever K it was, we eventually pulled into a town on the coast and I just, yeah, I just, <laughs> I just kind of broke down. I was just so broken, but I was so happy afterwards that we got through it. Um, and I was so happy that the two boys dragged me out because I surprised myself that I, they actually could get through it. Cause I was gone mentally. I was absolutely, um, I was absolutely gone. So it definitely taught me a valuable life lesson in terms of just even on the worst day. Um, if you give yourself a chance to show up, you might surprise yourself lesson learned
2: uh you mentioned there was a second moment as well a second day was
1: there <laughs> this is this is more for the for the bike purists less of the emotional stuff and um, obviously our bikes had done a lot of mileage and before we left for before we left aqua i had done an awful lot of training on our gravel bikes Um, i'd probably done about 5000k anyway so we were in albania and there's very little cycling in albania in fact there's barely a bike shop in albania and i noticed about two or three days into Albania that there was a crack in my rim in in the rim of the wheel the back wheel and then I looked closer and I noticed that pretty much every spoke there was a crack in the rim and and I turned around to Niall I was like Niall this isn't good and he looked at us straight away and he was like oh that's bad he was like that's really bad and then we noticed one spoke in particular was completely and I mean a monumentally sized crack in the rim and Niall was like if someone came into me in the shop with that like under no circumstances would they left him. What I left him cycle on it. He was like, no, I was afraid that the wheel just might fail and that it might be catastrophic or that I'd get a blowout because the cracks weren't just going from spoke to spoke. They were starting to go horizontal to the side part of the rim. And that increased the chance of a blowout. And the thing was completely buckled and we were not even anywhere close to a bike shop. Any bike shop we did find that we ran didn't have, the type of wheel we needed we were on pretty high spec gravel bikes like genesis true axle gravel bikes nile knows the details but anyway we needed a pretty high spec wheel so for three days and i mean we crawled we literally crawled on the bikes i sat on that bike terrified my back wheel would just fail or blow out and we crawled at 20k an hour for three full days on the bike until we got inside the greek border and until we got to a place called egumenetza just inside greece and we had rang ahead We met the owner of the bike shop when we rang ahead answered we told them what we were doing and he said i don't have one here but i'll go to my supplier i'll see what they have and he got a courier to bring it to the bike shop for the day that we arrived in his town and he changed it first gave it to us at cost price he went completely out of his way to get the wheel first he had to try a couple of different suppliers and we crawled into that town and by the time my back wheel got to that town there was nothing left in it he looked at it and he was just like lads you are so lucky like it was completely shredded every spoke had a crack in the room it was my my back wheel was literally disintegrating as I pedalled it
2: wow that is not good (laughs) So
1: no and if that wheel had failed we were thinking up we were like what are we going to do we had said on we had done three we had to do three days and on the second night we were like what are we doing if this fails what is the plan how do we get to the next place And because there was no possible way we could have fixed it, we were in the middle of nowhere. And me being stubborn, I was like, Well, if my wheel fails, I'm walking. Uh, I was like, I am not getting in a car for under any circumstances. I was like, I will walk to (laughs) Athens if I have to. (laughs) So I was was being completely unhelpful towards the the situation. Two boys were just looking at me, being like, You're a fucking gobshite. Sorry for my language but like they were they were they were looking at me being like what is wrong with this and I was like I will walk if this wheel fails thankfully the wheel didn't fail but that was that was proper hairy we were genuinely worried about what we were going to do
2: I'm sure there are plenty of stories and memories for life to be shared between um the three of you on that trip and were they also on the trip the 1100 or the 1200 uh, coastal loop of Ireland and on your 32 counties trek as well
1: yeah, so me, me Stephen and Niall did the, the original one, the 1200 back in 2013. And then me and Stephen both did the 32 county one. So the, the three of us are, are have a pretty close bond um, when you've been through something like this, particularly the 58 days across Europe. You really get to know someone in and out and you really see them at their best and um at their worst. Um and so yeah, it forms a pretty it forms a pretty tight bond. So um I'm very, very grateful to have them as my kind of cycling partners for all these crazy endeavors that we do.
2: I have a feeling that there could be like a book or something that could come out of these adventures from your Cormac. <laughs>
1: Oh, I, don't, I don't know if I'd have I don't know if I'd have the English language skills now to do that. I don't and you know just get an that.
2: editor. Be fine. I think there's lots of stories <laughs> that you could document that, um, you know, even from, you know, the, the adventures that you've been on, but also through the struggles that you've had as well, you know, sharing your story. And I know that this episode of the podcast is coming out after there's an RT documentary that will have been aired as well um, about some of the stuff you've been up to. But before we finish up, because we have been chatting for, for quite a while, I wanted to ask you bikepacking and adventures and all that kind of stuff is one thing but you obviously have some form as a cyclist to be able to complete what you've done and all the climbing and everything so would you consider doing an endurance style cycling event now I know we spoke briefly before the show about that but what would you think
1: like I'm not going to say ram and race like the race around Ireland or even I saw Jason Black was advertising something there a few months ago. There's some new malentimism type one they're pushing. Like, I'm not saying they don't appeal to me. Of course they do. They're exceptionally cool things to do. And I love, like, I'm obs- I'm fascinated by human endurance. Like, that's kind of just the thing that fascinates me. And I don't know what part of me it appeals to, but I love watching documentaries about people who cycle all over the world or cycle across continents or people who row across oceans. I love all that stuff. I, I suppose my concern, my slight concern is just... That fine line between competition and enjoyment, and I'm very aware of what brings me kind of contentment in life and fulfillment. And competition has never quite done it for me, and to be honest, if I cycle from malintimism, whether I cycle from malintimism and just for the crack, or whether I do it in a competition, me doing it better than someone doesn't change how I feel about myself just me doing it makes me feel good about myself so whether I do an Ironman and come first or whether I just do an Ironman and I'm like I'm gonna tip away at this and enjoy it I've still done an Ironman beating 10 other people saying oh I'm better than those 10 or 100 other people that shouldn't make me feel any better about than myself because then it's not about who you are as a person like it's not a then you're then you're needing to almost. And this might be a twisted way to look at competition, but you're needing to get a one-up on someone to make you feel reassured about yourself or content in yourself. And that's just how I view competition. So I'm not saying that I won't ever do them or that I won't do competitive triathlons or competitive races, but in my own head at the age I am now, and probably because of what I've been through, it took so long for me to just accept who I am and like who I am that I'm pretty okay with just doing them for enjoyment. So I think there's your answer.
2: And you've also raised an absolute huge amount of money as well between your cycle for life and this event. So we'll include the link in our show notes. But if somebody wants to make a donation to the Acle to Athens adventure, where can they do it?
1: Yeah, very simply, if you just Google Ackle to Athens, it'll pop up. It's it's on an I donate uh, fundraising page. But yeah, just Ackle to Athens into Google and you'll get it.
2: Thank you so much for joining me and for being so open and honest in telling me your story. I can imagine it's not very easy to speak to anybody about it, never mind a stranger that's been stalking you for the past uh, two or three months. But thank you so much and best of luck with everything that you have planned. I can write your mother a note if you want to tell her that I think you (laughs) should go to America if that might work. Um, But best of luck with everything. And it was so lovely to chat with you.
1: Cheers, Geran. Much appreciated.
0: Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget you can get in touch with any feedback or guest suggestions by emailing me on trytalkingsport at gmail.com. I'd love to connect on social media. You can find me on all the usual platforms, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Pop by and say hi. Let me know what you think of the show. If you are new to Try Talking Sport, please do check out some of our previous episodes. You will be impressed and inspired by our guests. Finally, be sure to check out our new e-zine featuring articles of interest, some great discounts and the inside track on supporting your triathlon and endurance sport journey. Sign up over on the website, it takes 30 seconds and I promise I won't bombard your inbox with emails, just the important stuff. Until next time, stay safe, keep smiling and remember to look for fun and adventure in every day.